All right, well, we are going to be in Psalm 3 this morning. And by the way, if you don't know me, I'm Ethan. Um, and if you came here to hear Josh this morning, I'm sorry. Um, I'm surprised at how many people we have, and I say that half-jokingly. Um, sometimes when you preach in a church and you're not, like, the, the lead pastor, um, half the people show up. So thanks for being here, first of all. <clears throat> As you turn to Psalm 3, um, I want to recognize something. And what I want to recognize is this. So there's a lot of us who maybe showed up this morning feeling really beat up. Feeling really down. You showed up this morning and you're carrying with you the wounds of family troubles. The wounds of conflicts at work. Of conflicts in relationships. Maybe you're carrying with you the guilt of unconfessed and unrepented sin. And that causes you to beat yourself up, as well as to have our enemy, Satan, beating us up over it. A lot of us can come here, and we, we get here to church, and we feel like we have to say to everyone, they say, hey, how are you this morning? And we have to always say, I'm good, right? Oh, yeah, I'm good. You know, you know, you're like crying in the car before, right? You're about to like lose it on your kid, lose it on your spouse before, and you show up, and you're like, oh, yeah, I'm good. Well, as we're thinking about the summer in the Psalms, we're going to see a certain type of psalm. And if you've read the psalms, uh, spent any time in them at all, you know that some of them are not always peppy and joyful, right? Some of them uh, can be, at least in the beginning, downright depressing. And these are psalms that we call lament psalms. A lament is this. It's just a passionate expression of grief and of sorrow. And so maybe you're feeling like you need to be singing a lament this morning because you've come here and you're carrying with you these wounds, these burdens, these frustrations. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you are drawn to the Psalms because you like things that are uh, passionate and poetic. And so for you, if you could pick one book to read, you would just read the Psalms because it, it connects with you in that way. Um, maybe you're someone who's not like that, and you're drawn to other parts of the Bible. Maybe um, the emotional side gets a little just bit too much emotional for you, and we've got to kind of create some distance. But you like to hang out in Romans, right? You like to hang out in Paul's epistles, where everything's real systematic. And so whenever you get into something like the Psalms with all the emotions, uh, maybe your eyes glaze over a little bit with all this emotional talk. Well, I hope that you don't. I hope that you don't just read this too and miss the emotion. Because I know for me, there's times where I go to the Psalms, and... If it's the first thing I'm reading in the morning, I'm drowsy, and I'm missing the emotion. I'm just reading what's there, and I'm thinking about what are the facts of what's being stated here. But I have to understand that these are songs written in an intense time, some of them. And this one that we're going to be reading about today was written in, in a really intense time. Um, I want to give you some context to this. So before we ever even get to reading the psalm, we're going to look at, um, I'm going to explain to you uh, the story behind the psalm. You can find this whole story uh, in 2 Samuel 13. Chapter 13 through 19. We're not going to read all that because we'd be here. That would be the entire sermon. Um, but I wanted to summarize what happens here. And if you look at the top, maybe right above where verse 1 is, it says, A psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. So that's what we're talking about this morning. So we're going to look at the story and think about the story of when David fled from his son Absalom. So David is the king of Israel, right? 
And he has a lot of children because he has a lot of wives. And just because he was the king of Israel and he had a lot of wives doesn't mean that we get to. Okay? Um, but he did this, and the Bible doesn't say it's good. It actually leads to a lot of bad things. He has all these children from a number of wives, and there's this one son named Amnon. And Amnon is in love with his sister Tamar. Really, she's his half-sister, which doesn't really make it much better. Um, but he is in love with her. And so he has a friend who um, obviously is not a very good friend because he helps him. Instead of saying, hey man, you're in love with your sister. Uh, and that's kind of weird. So why don't we just back off of that. Um, this friend is a bad friend. And he says, you know what, man? I have a plan for you. Okay, I'm going to help you get what you want. So he tells him to lay in bed sick and have Tamar, the sister he's in love with, come in and take care of him and to see what happens. Well, he uses his time to get her alone and he uh, attempts to sleep with her there. And obviously she doesn't like the idea. Um, and who can blame her? So she resists. And he ends up overpowering her. So now that all this has happened in her shame, she goes to her brother, Absalom. And Absalom is understandably upset at this, angry about it, he takes her in to live with him. And in all of this, here's the thing, David, the king, who's supposed to be giving out justice to the people, does nothing about it. David does not respond to this crime against his daughter. So Absalom, he ends up murdering Amnon, and then he flees out of the country for a number of years while David is mourning Amnon. And so we see how David, even though he was a great king, a man after God's own heart, there were some things that were misplaced, some priorities that were wrong. He didn't have everything right, because he was not mourning. He was mourning Amnon in his death more than he was mourning Tamar and her being violated like she was. Well, finally, with some convincing, David allows Absalom to return home. But he's not allowed to see David's face. He says, you can come back, you can live in the country, but we're not going to have a relationship, is essentially what he says. Well, finally, though, he does. He is able um, to be near David, but the bitterness is too deep. He doesn't want a relationship. Instead, he, he creates a, essentially a crew, right? He has chariots and horses and 50 men that go before him who are just, I guess, his boys, right, that he hangs out with, and they run before him and let you know that Absalom's coming. And he has all this recognition now. So he sits at the gate, and he intercepts everyone who's coming to see King David. And he tells them essentially this, you know what, you have really good concerns. I understand what you're upset about and coming to get a judgment from the king about. You know, it would be good if the king made someone, I don't know, someone the judge to help you decide these disputes. Obviously, he has himself in mind. And here's what the writer of 2 Samuel says. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. So he has all the support that he's gained because he's been stealing the hearts of the men of Israel. They are now with him. With this support gained, he makes a move to take the throne. And so David is forced to flee for his life. And so he goes and he leaves out of the country, out of Jerusalem. An interesting thing happens. As he is fleeing, he comes 
upon the house of a relative of Saul, who was the king before David, right? The king who did a lot of things wrong, and the king who was the people's choice and not God's choice. And so this relative of Saul comes up and he curses David and he says this, Get out! Get out! You man of bloodshed, you wicked man. The Lord has paid you back for all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you became king. And the Lord has handed the kingdom over to your son Absalom. Look, you are in trouble because you are a man of bloodshed. So he comes out and he is hurling these curses at him. And not curses like we think about curse words today. He's actually cursing him and saying, God has cursed you. This is heavy stuff. I'm going to step back and take a moment to say this, parents. The good news is that no matter how bad your children rebel, none of you have ever been dethroned by your child and they've not taken your position and taken your country. So that's good news, right? <clears throat> With all this in mind, though, imagine being David. You've been deposed. Your son, your own son, has taken the throne from you. And he's taken the throne from you because you didn't do justice. Because you didn't do what you maybe should have done. And he goes, and he goes to sleep. And the next morning, he wakes up. And you know whenever you're in a really hard time, and you wait, and, and, and things are just bad for you. Maybe someone in your family has died, or something terrible has happened, you've lost your job, whatever it is. And you go to sleep, and then you wake up, and there's those few moments before you kind of remember everything that's happened, and you're kind of happy for a second because you woke up, and then it all comes rushing back. Imagine David waking up. For a second, he's like, we're camping or something. And then it all rushes back to him. No, I'm out here on this hilltop, out here in this field, because my son rebelled against me and took the throne. Many think that this psalm that we're about to read is a morning psalm, written to be read in the morning when times are bad, and that Psalm 4 is an evening psalm, and they go together. So with all of this in mind, I want us to hear Psalm 3 now read, understanding this lament, and understanding that it's not just the guy who had a bad day. He's not just the guy who had a flat tire. Um, David's not just a guy who stubbed his toe. Um, he's having not just a bad day. He's going through a huge tragedy for himself, for his family, for his nation. This is a true lament. So let's hear the sorrow and the passion and the emotion and the lament that is Psalm 3. Lord, how my foes increase. There are many who attack me. Many say about me there is no help for him in God. But you, Lord, are a shield around me. My glory, the one who lifts up my head. I cry aloud to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of thousands of people who have taken their stand against me on every side. Rise up, Lord. Save me, my God. You strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. May your blessing be on your people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us understand the emotion, the hurt, the pain behind this lament that we find in Psalm 3. Though none of us have been through an occasion or a situation as intense 
That's what David is going through here. Help us to, and someone be able to grasp it, Lord. Help us, if we are here this morning, feeling pain, feeling hurt, feeling the wounds of this life, that for us, we, we would listen and hear the, the awesome truth found in the psalm this morning. Lord, ask for all of us, you'd give us ears to hear your truth. You'd help us understand it both with our minds and with our hearts. Help me, Lord, to proclaim your word rightly and to cut it straight. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Our main idea as we look at this psalm is this. When our enemy, enemies are overwhelming, our salvation belongs to the Lord. So we're going to see how that works out. Point one is this. This is verses one and two. Our enemies are great. When we talk about great, we don't mean like, hey, they're great people. Um, they're just misguided. We say our enemies are great, and our enemies are powerful. Our foes are many. That's what David says here. Lord, how my foes increase. They are, there are many who attack me. Many who say these things about me, who say there is no help for him and God. We face all kinds of enemies in this life. We have to understand something. Some of us have conflicts with people. We feel like people are our enemies. We feel like we have some you know, haters, is how some people... Um, would say it, and maybe that's true, but we have enemies that are various. And I want us to think about this psalm in context of the three enemies that Paul says that we have in Ephesians 2, verses 2 and 3. He says this, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world. Alright, so the first one is the world. According to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. That's Satan, this ruler of the power of the air. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. That's the flesh. For us, we have three enemies in this world, or in this life, I should say, and they are this, the world, Satan, and the flesh. So as you think about this, don't just think about people... Uh, I hope we don't limit ourselves. Some of us are, think a lot about spiritual warfare and we go immediately to the enemy being Satan, being demonic attacks that come against us, and that's where we go immediately. Some of us maybe go immediately to um, the world and think about people who are out in the world who do not like us, maybe because we're Christians, maybe because we just don't have the best personality, I don't know, whatever it is, for some reason they don't like us, and we can't figure it out. Um, and then maybe some of you, and I think this is the, the least number of us, but maybe you are someone who uh, understands that the enemy is the flesh. This flesh that you still live in is um, an enemy. It is against you and against God's work in you. But as you think about these things, I want, to, I want to tell you about them real quick. So the first one is the world. When we look at the world, we understand that the world, if we talk about that, is the systems and the ideas and the people who are in open rebellion against God. And against history. That's what the world is. The world includes those people who maybe don't like us because we're Christians. People who hold to ideas that make us just coming from totally different places because we aim to glorify God and they don't. And then there's Satan, the great enemy of God and of God's people. He is the one who has um, been against God from the beginning, he is the one who is there at the garden taking part in Adam and Eve falling and being tempted. His goal is to steal and to kill and to 
destroy. When we say destroy, there's only so much power he has over us. If we were to go to Job, the book of Job, we could see that he only has the power that God gives him. That his goal is to destroy as much as he can the work of God in us and the works of God through us. And lastly, we have the flesh. And that is those desires which remain in us, right? These fleshly desires that Paul talks about in Ephesians 2. Because of those fleshly desires, we carry out these inclinations of our flesh, right? These are the things that Paul talks about in Galatians 5. Whenever he speaks of the fact that the Spirit is in us working, causing good works to happen, there's this fruit of the Spirit we see there in Galatians 5. There's also the flesh, and the flesh causes us to do these things that we don't want to do. Because we have a new heart and a new spirit, we want to glorify God. But the flesh is there saying, satisfy me. So for us, as we think about our foes, the many who attack us, I hope that our scope isn't limited. That we give all three of these things, all three of these enemies, uh, the right consideration, and don't just zero in on one. Well, David's here, he's dealing in this situation with the enemy, which is the world. There are people here human beings who are rebelling against him. And Absalom, his own son, is rebelling against him. And he's very well could be under the influence of Satan while doing this. The question for us is this. We see what he's facing. But what enemies are you facing, church? Do you have enemies that you feel like they're increasing? You're getting pushback from certain people in your life. Certain people who are against you for one reason or another, maybe it's because you follow Jesus. And you feel like it's increasing all the time. You feel like in your profession that to have the convictions you do, to have a biblical worldview, that the heat's being turned up on you to abandon those things. Maybe uh, you feel like Satan is attacking you more and more, and those attacks are increasing. Or maybe you feel like the flesh is winning out more often causing you to say and do things that you know you shouldn't do and you don't want to do, really, because of the Spirit working in you. But what enemies are you facing? I want you to actually think about that this morning. Maybe write it down in your notes. What, what am I facing that feel as though these enemies are increasing? I feel like I'm being overwhelmed by them. And here's the thing about these attacks, whenever we face these. It usually doesn't stay at the point of attack, Right? But it causes us to question if God is with us in it. It actually causes people to say about us, maybe for us to question ourselves, to say there is no help for him in God. Maybe it leads us to say, are we really with God? And is God really with us? Am I really a follower of Jesus? Or have I just been deceiving myself all this time? These attacks, these enemies are great, and they can cause great distress. We know that we're going to face them. We know they're going to cause us to doubt sometimes. But here's the hope. The fact that our next point, the Lord is greater. I want to make a, a quick just segue or a quick side note about this word Selah, which I, I forgot to read. And I always forget that when I'm reading the Psalms. Selah is something that, um, this is the first time we've encountered it as we're going through the Psalms in this series, the summer in the Psalms. And Selah is an interesting word. Um, I first really heard it because there was a group that came on 106.9 called Selah. And then I saw the name in the Bible. And I was like, hey, the Bible got that from Selah. Because um, I was that young, that's how I thought. 
<clears throat> but Selah is something that can be confusing. Um, no one really knows exactly what it was for. But we know it's there for a purpose. Um, some of the theories are this. Whenever Selah is there, it literally just means just to st- stop and think about what's happening. To think about what's going on in the past few lines. So to stop and reflect is one thought. Another one is to raise up your voices, kind of in music like a crescendo, if you're familiar with that, where the music gets louder and louder. And here, we're, we're lifting up our voices and getting louder to proclaim this truth more powerfully. Some people think it's just stop and tune your instruments, because I guess the instruments they did back then could only last about a verse before you had to tune them. Um, there's a number of things, and we don't really know, but here's what we do know, that as we're looking at a, at a psalm, these help us understand some of the structure of it and why it is the way, uh, set up the way that it is, where maybe each verse, each thought is self-contained. So now going back to the verses 3 and 4, we have these enemies that are great. They cause great distress in us. But the Lord, our God, He is greater. And we're attacked. We know this is going to come, right? Because Jesus said it. And here's the thing. We, a lot of us, we face these things and we say, there's no help for us in God, right? Where are you, God? Or people look at us and say, why is this happening to you? And there are people on TV who will say to you, well, if you're facing these things, maybe you don't have enough faith, which is lies. People who say that, they say all kinds of things. I'm going to move on from that. Um, here's what Jesus says in John 15, verses 18 through 20. If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word that I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. We know as followers of Jesus that this is going to happen. Because people in rebellion against him, they're not going to like those who follow him. So this is a reality. But here's what God says about it. So we know the attacks are going to come. We've been promised it, and that should give us some hope. But here are this hope in verses 3 and 4. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. All the things we worry about when we are attacked are spoken to right here. There's an actual protection that comes from a shield, from God stopping the attacks from getting to us. And these are attacks that can come from all around. He says in verse 6 that he's not afraid of thousands of people who have taken their stand against me on every side. Fighting a battle on multiple fronts is not a good thing to do, if you can help it. Fighting against people who have surrounded you is not a good thing to do, because you can only face in one direction. That leaves so much of you uh, insecure. But David says, I'm not afraid of thousands of people who attack me and take their stand against me on every single side. What can give him this confidence? Because our God is a shield around him. All the way around, protecting him in every single direction from any possible attack that could come. So there's this actual kind of physical protection that comes from a shield. But there's something else that comes. The glory and the lifting up of their head. When we face these things, we often feel incredible shame. We've gone through this. That people would look at us and say such hateful things. That people would be uh, 
so hurtful to us, and we go through these attacks, whatever it is that, become, that comes against us, and we feel this incredible shame. But here is God restoring honor. He says, you're a shield around me. You are my glory. I feel like everything that, that I have that is my own glory is gone. It's been stripped away. And David probably felt that. Right? He's the king, and all that's been stripped away. But now God is his glory. Not his palace. Not his throne. God is his glory. God is the one who lifts up his head. There's a physical... There's something physical that happens whenever you face the kind of shame that David faced here, right? Maybe you slouch down. Maybe you keep your head down. You don't even want to look people in the eyes. He says God is the lifter of his head, the one who lifts him up. This is God restoring honor to him. God in his salvation takes away the shame of all the attacks that the enemy brings against us. And it goes on to say, I cry aloud to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. Now this isn't some small internal prayer, right? This isn't like, under his breath, Lord, help me. This is crying aloud. This is a wailing that happens when great loss happens. Our son Simeon is getting to a point in life where he um, experiences great loss at least seven times a day. Um, because he has some toy that he wants, or he, wants to, he loves watching on our phone um, five little mon- monkeys jumping on the bed, um, and he's at this point in life where if you take that thing away from him, he experiences great loss, right? That's how it feels. Because all of a sudden, he lifts up this cry, and I mean, he's wailing, right? You think that he just lost his best friend, and it's because we took the phone so we can watch that video. It's because we took the apple juice or whatever it is. Whatever, all, all these little things, Maybe you've experienced it in your own life, not because of five little monkeys jumping on the bed or apple juice, um, but something that actually is a problem. The wailing that comes when something bad has truly happened. In New Mexico, before I became the pastor of that church, the, the pastor was my best friend. His name was happened to be Josh, too. And I remember that Sarah and I, we got the call that he had been in a car accident and they didn't know what was happening. Um, but all of us are pretty sure that he didn't make it. Um, and I'll never forget driving over to his house, and there in New Mexico, you have like, it's essentially a screen door, right? But it's like metal, so it's not like a screen, um, but you can, you can hear through it, right? Air flows through it. I remember that door was the only door that was closed at the moment, and pulling up into the driveway, hearing his wife wailing, um, is a sound that you'll never get out of your head if you've ever experienced that. And I'm sure a lot of you have experienced loss like that. And so, when you think about this, I cry out to the Lord. This is not just saying, God, if you, you know, just help me out if you could. This is a wail that is rising up from the deepest part of David. As he says, God, I cannot do this. I need your help. I cry aloud to the Lord. And here's the good news. Here's where it starts to turn. And he answers me from his holy mountain. He answers from this holy mountain. The holy mountain he speaks of is not some far off place that's kind of mystical, like Mount Olympus um, with the Greek gods. It's not like that. His holy mountain is an actual place. It is Zion. This holy mountain is where Jeru- the mountain that Jerusalem is on top of, where God's temple is. 
where his presence physically is. And God answers him from there. The interesting part about this is that this is the same place, Jerusalem, where Absalom seems to be in charge. Here's the thing, he only seems to be in charge. Though he's taken the throne across town on the mercy seat, it's Yahweh, the true God. And there is where he answers from that place of true authority. Absalom, Absalom's authority is made up. He thinks that he has it, but the true authority comes from God, who sits in his temple. And he answers David from that place. Because he is the one who's unquestionably in charge there in Jerusalem. There where it seems like Absalom has the upper hand. For so many of us, we look at this world and we see these people who attack us. These hard times that come. Whatever it is, it seems like the attacker has the upper hand. Right? We, we go to this place where we, because we're the victim there and that, we feel that there's, the attacker has the upper hand. But we forget one thing, that God is unquestionably in charge. This is the reality, once again, of Job. In the story of Job, the theme throughout is that God was unquestionably in charge. And because of that, salvation belongs to him. This is our last point. God answers from the holy mountain, and now the demeanor of David completely changes. He remembers, he knows he is the answer from God, and so now he can say, I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. First of all, in, in a bad time like this, it's amazing that he even laid down and slept, right? And for so many of us, um, for me, just knowing that something's coming tomorrow that's going to be stressful um, can keep me awake at night, right? And for him, he's lost the entire kingdom. This is a huge thing. But he has the confidence because God answers him, because God is on his holy mountain. God is reigning in Jerusalem. Not Absalom. He can lie down and he can sleep. Because he knows he's going to wake again because God is sustaining him. God allows true rest for David because he knows that he can trust in him. Leads him saying, I can withstand a thousand people. I'm not afraid of them coming at me from every side. The trajectory of the psalm is moving slowly upward. We've seen, right? It starts down here. God, how many are my foes? I cannot do this on my own. I'm surrounded by people. My foes are all around me. And they're saying there is no help for him and God. And this is like, how low can you start? Because that's where it is. And the trajectory of the psalm has been slowly going upward. He says, people are against me. But God, you're a shield around me. You answer me. From your holy mountain. I can lie down and sleep and wake because you sustain me. And I won't be afraid of thousands of people against me on every side. And so this psalm is moving slowly upward. And this is how all but one lament psalm and the entire book of the psalms works. They start out low and they are moving slowly up as the confidence is regained by the psalmist. And now David's confidence in the Lord is restored. So he calls out for God to rise up and to save him. 
He doesn't ask God to strike the enemies on the cheek or to break their teeth, which is what he says here, which is, first of all, just incredible language. Um, but he, he doesn't say, God, would you do this? He says, you strike on my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. He knows that this is how God works. He knows that God's going to do this because in making themselves enemies of David, they're making themselves enemies of God because David is God's king. And moving on, he finally, the highest point, says this, salvation belongs to the Lord. May your blessing be on your people. David knows that if he goes back to Jerusalem in his own power and tries to wage a war against Absalom, that he will not win. If he goes and does this thing in his own power, it's not going to work. Because salvation belongs to one person and one person alone. And that's the Lord. Only the Lord can save him. Only the Lord can bring about salvation. For us, we have to understand this. So many of us try to go about situations and fix them in our own way, with our own power and our own wisdom. Which is, at the end of the day, if it's our own wisdom, then it's no wisdom at all. If it's our own power, it's no power at all. Because salvation belongs to one person, one person only, and that's the Lord. And then he asks this, may your blessing be on your people. Now this is interesting that he finishes this way, may your blessing beyond your people. And your people is the key here. As we think about this psalm, and I'm starting to land this plane, we have to understand something. Who are these psalms for? Who is the psalm for? Many people who have no interest in following Jesus can pick up a book, can pick up a Bible, and look at the psalm, and maybe feel kind of warm and fuzzy because of it. We have to understand something. The blessings of this book is for his people. If you're here today and you aren't following Jesus, maybe uh, you aren't hoping in the salvation that comes from Him, understand that the hope of the promises here, they're not for you, at least not yet. You are, according to God's Word, an enemy of God. You can find that in Romans 5 and Colossians 2, I believe, that we are enemies of God. We are the ones who are going to be struck on the cheek have teeth broken because we are enemies of God because of our wickedness. And judgment is coming. And honestly, it's a judgment that is much more harsh than what's being spoken of here, striking on the cheek and breaking the teeth. That is tame and calm compared to the judgment that is coming for all of us who are enemies of God. So if you're here this morning and that's you, you've not ever trusted in Jesus and his work on the cross, I hope that you will do that. This morning, I hope you'll respond to Christ's offer to come to Him, to trust in Him, to become a part of His people because He died on the cross for you. And that is the way to come, it's in faith in His death on the cross. Then you can know, when you've trusted in Him, that the enemies of your soul are great, but the God who saves is greater. And for the Christian, you're here this morning and you say, I do follow Jesus. I want you to remember something as we think about this, because this is some heavy and harsh words. Right? He speaks of God striking enemies on the cheek and breaking their teeth. And for a lot of us, it gets amped up. 
and the way we think about our enemies, and we can pray um, psalms and, and pray like David did against our enemies, but understand something. Our foes, our enemies, the people who are against us, are people who need redemption just like we need redemption. The only thing that separates you from them is the grace of God in your life. That's it. There are people who need redemption just like you. Later, Absalom dies. He is killed. And David mourns his death. Even though Absalom did so many things. And if you go back and read 2 Samuel 13 through 19, you see there's some things we didn't even talk about that Absalom does. Vile things. Awful things. It would be easy for David to write him off as his enemy and God's enemy. When Absalom is killed against David's wishes, because David, remember this battle starts in the end, says, no one touch him, no one harm him. But somebody does anyways. David is broken. David is distraught. Many of us like to cheer at the disgrace of someone who's our enemy. We need to not forget that we were once enemies of God. We need to remember Christ. Instead of demanding justice for himself, instead of choosing to strike the cheek and break the teeth of his earthly enemies, instead he died for his earthly enemies on the cross. He took on the sin of our rebellion against our true king, just like the sin of rebellion was with Absalom as he rebelled against his true king. We too sin against our true king and rebel against him, and he bore that sin. He desired restoration for us the same way David did for Absalom. But on the cross, Christ took us from the place of enemy and he made us his people. He made us part of his family, part of the nation who follows the true king. And so now for us, because that is true, we can look at the psalm and we can pray this because we are his people. So as we finish up this morning, and my encouragement is for you, first of all, if you have not trusted in Christ, you would come and you would talk to myself and talk to me and I'll tell you all about what it means to follow Jesus. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus and you know, man, these things, I'm going through this, my foes are increasing, you would make this your prayer this morning. You would trust in our God who is a shield and who sustains us and who protects us. And you would remember, as John uh, says in 1 John 4, 4, the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Let's pray.